0: businesses that are closing all across the United States, but one of the things that we don't talk about enough is what happens when there are hospital closures, and that happens Dr. Donahue. Welcome to the
1: broadcast. Well, Armstrong, as always, it's a great pleasure, particularly here in the studio. You're so right, and your last segment um, begs that question. So it isn't the case that we're a nation of men or women, we're a nation of laws. And has my experience over the years that, in general, when something starts off bad, it gets worse. Rarely does it start off bad and go good. So if we begin our relationship by breaking the law, it has consequences down the road. The health care system is overwhelmed by this. I would suggest that any of your, uh, your, your viewers who don't think this is the case, swing by any urban emergency room anytime and ask yourself, is this staff strained to the limit Is our healthcare system overwhelmed? Are people crossing the border illegally, getting screened for diseases? Could some of those diseases be communicable? Here we are just now in the wake of COVID and glibly overlooking the fact that we don't have a border and forgetting just for a moment that no nation in the history of mankind has survived without a border. You know, I have six kids at home. My job last night was to go around and check the doors to make sure the doors are locked. It doesn't make me anti-homeless. It just means I need to secure the well-being of my family, and so it is with the nation. And the one thing Armstrong, all of our viewers, I think, can agree on is the single purpose of government that is beyond dispute is to maintain the safety of the governed. And that means, of course, assessing who it is that becomes citizens in the United States and protecting us from what we now have, which is an absolute over-the-transom invasion.
0: You know, uh, um, Gene Drummond, there is a healthcare staffing crisis, yeah. and you know what? People are finding a hard time to find a good doctor. You know, I'm fortunate I've had the same doctor for the last five, 35 years without any interruption, but talk about the staffing crisis and the larger impact that it has and just people finding good physicians.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Well, first of all, thank you so much, Armstrong. I'm always pleased. So as you know, um, we've been in business with Healthcare Dynamics International for now. Actually, we'll be celebrating 33 years very soon. And it's no question since when COVID came, um, there was just such a um, challenge with healthcare workers. I mean the entire system was stretched. It was something we had never seen. But I'm going to say particularly in our line of work when we think about health disparities and health equity and when we look at our communities, the zip codes, the disadvantaged communities, particularly these are communities that are healthcare shortage areas which you know certainly um, some of the Department of Health and and Human Services um, agencies like HRSA really focus on trying to increase the number of particularly minorities that enter into healthcare. why because we know that there is something called physician concordance and we know that when you have a lived experience maybe coming from you know a community that was disadvantaged you tend to want to serve i know i'm a pa my husband's a physician both of us came from communities that you know were disadvantaged were lower socioeconomic areas and so we want to give back to those communities so i guess it is um a, de- a decline but there are programs and strategies In fact, we're working with one I'm happy to say with with, um, the HBCU buoy that we're trying to increase the number of public health information technology students that are interested in the data analytics to to understand health equity and how we can develop more culturally competent, culturally intelligent programs so that we can go out into the communities, so that we can serve minority populations that may be living in zip codes that have under resourced medical medical professionals. So it, it indeed it is, but there are strategies going on that you don't have to how long does it take to get a doctor? Like 20, 20, 30 years, right? I'm a PA, I'm a physician assistant. My education was much more, was was much shorter. Although PAs are excellent in primary care, nurse practitioners are. We have community health workers. Oh, what an amazing opportunity because they still are individuals from those communities. We can hire them. Economics, come on, right? Economics. They know the cultural, the the cultural nuances of their community. They have the voice, trusted voice. And so I'm excited. HCDI, we employ so many community health workers across the country to be able to serve the local needs and those local needs are social needs healthcare needs you can teach them about hypertension or, you know cardiology to my, to my cardiologist here and so yes there is a problem but we bring in solutions to it because that's what, that's what we need is innovators disruptive thinkers of how we can address these issues related to health equity
0: you know Dr. Um, um, Michael Knight from George Washington University is also joining us how do we deal with these preventable medical errors that continue to occur and cost people their lives and serious medical consequences.
3: Yeah, thank you for that question, Armstrong. You know, what we have to realize is that there will always be errors when it comes to human, right? There's always going to be human error. So it's about building systems that will prevent human error from reaching the patient. As someone who spent many years as a patient safety officer, there's a whole patient safety science that is designed to have checks and balances, whether it's in the electronic medical record, anyone who's been to a hospital, you probably know that there's a wristband that has your name. It may even have a QR code that the nurse may scan to confirm that you are the right patient to receive the right medication. These are systems that are put in place to keep patients safe. Now, what happens when we ignore systems or when we're understaffed, when our nurses, our physicians, are doing much, much more than they may be capable of doing because of the hours they've been working or the volume? of work that they are doing, people get tired, people get fatigued. And then we that's when we start seeing mistakes happening. So it's really not only building systems to prevent human error, which is going to happen from reaching patients, but also ensuring that we have a strong healthcare system and that our healthcare providers and staff, feel empowered and also feel like the health system in general, the healthcare organization that they're working for, is keeping in mind their well-being and vitality. And if I've been working for over 24 hours and I'm tired and I have an additional 10, 12, 15 patients to see, uh, and do I feel empowered to say, I'm not feeling so well, I'm feeling tired, I feel like I could make a mistake? We have to have that real conversation. We wouldn't want a pilot uh, flying our plane who doesn't feel up to it. And we have to have that conversation with healthcare staff. And of course, we want to give them resources so that they always feel up to it because we need them. We need physicians, we need nurses, we need all healthcare professionals uh, to be on target and ready to deliver the healthcare that our community needs.
0: Dr. Downey, which brings us to, what about this poor amenable
1: mortality rate? So Armstrong, our nation does not lead the world in healthcare outcomes. So it is the case that infant mortality in America is uh, something that is, lags behind most of the countries in Europe, uh, lots of the countries in Asia, and it's multifactorial. But, uh, a lot, but on the other hand, in general, it is the case that the future of healthcare is determined here in America. Ask yourself what, what drugs your physician that you described over the last 30 years prescribed for you that came from Finland or Russia. So the first thing I have to say is that, that American healthcare is the envy of the world. In a full disclosure, needless to say, mistakes are made. Needless to say, there's room to improve. Deaths of despair in America lead the world by five-fold. It's a staggering fact. Yes, infant mortality, and as Gina as has suggested, there are pockets where infant mortality is a far bigger issue than it is in other areas. Infant mortality, is something that I think is among our, our easiest things to fix because principally infant mortality is a matter of access. It isn't a fundamental thing that we need to understand in new ways. We just need to build a pipe to bring the water from the reservoir to a thirsty population. And that's always an easier thing to do and we've been good at that over the years. But it is the case that, that we in America should be the shining city on a hill and in lots of areas of care, Armstrong, we are not.
2: So, go, please. You know, go yeah, absolutely. So, thank you, Doc, for saying that. One of the things that I just think is almost an atrocity is our maternal, but our our maternal uh, mortality and morbidity specifically related to brown and black moms. When you look at the data and you just kind of see, it's, there's some reports that are out that just make you, I mean, why, why are our black moms, and these are many times, black moms who are well educated. I mean, the history is just there. And so I think it's so. Uh, it's w- so what is just, the reason? I, well, you know, let's look at it. implicit bias implicit bias. Is it really true? It, of course not, that black women can sustain a higher level of pain than others, or that they're just not taken serious when they're, you know, when they're sharing something's not right. I mean, when you look at the data. Not taken this, serious by whom? My t- not taken serious by maybe their health care providers. So when you look at the data around um, outcomes for more, more, you know, women that have had just post-pregnancy, that have just had their postpartum, and it's it's just... So you think race plays an issue in this? Absolutely. I think that implicit bias, I think that just historically um, we have a real need to make sure that individuals are aware of their, conscious of their, you know, their biases and don't, don't and are aware of that when they're treating their patients, but yes, and so it, it as, as the doctor why,
0: why would race matter when you're treating the oh, patient? Dr. Wow. Donahue, yeah. I'm missing yeah, something yeah. here.
2: No, no, no. So whether you have access, it's, he mentioned the access, and just your, your Wait a
1: minute, whoa, whoa, whoa. Why would it matter? That? Why would race matter? Yeah. So it, it, it is not in my experience, having been deeply immersed in the healthcare system for 35 years, that Any physician that I've ever had contact with uh, undertakes health care in a fashion that is somehow dependent on your race or your gender or your uh, other obvious demographics.
0: Are you concerned about the quality of health care in this country?
3: I'm extremely concerned. I'm extremely concerned. And to pick up for our last conversation, I think we really have to look at the data okay? We know that race is a social construct. Genetically, we're 99.9% the same. So when we see certain groups of individuals that have worse health outcomes across almost across the board, so let's talk about Maryland, for example, whether it is health disparities around heart disease, prostate cancer, breast cancer, maternal mortality was identified. Why would one group have the highest levels across the board. We know that it's multifactorial. We talked about access, we talk about economics. but as one of the guests outlined, I think we also have to think about how people are received, um, how people may be treated in different settings. If anyone has walked into a private hospital, a private setting, versus a public institution where there is overcrowding where there is limited time with providers the experience is very different and unfortunately there are communities that that's the go-to and the experience has not been there and those who want to know it's been published many many times individuals are oftentimes told different things or a level of detail about very similar conditions when we think about things that are subjective if you come to me and say something feels wrong with this pregnancy or I'm in pain I'm not fully having my pain be controlled by this medication, I as a healthcare provider have to make a determination. There's no objective evidence. And if there's implicit bias, or if there's a way that I view someone, or I'm just tired, or the time, or the way that I think about um, supporting someone, it can be affected. So I agree with Dr. Donahue. I don't think we have healthcare professionals who go into medicine, go into healthcare to treat people different. But the reality is, it's not the same experience for everyone, and we want to get to the place where it is.
2: Absolutely.
0: So let me let me let me let me, let me um, raise this because I mentioned this in the introduction of the show. When is it that a person must come to the realization they need to go see a doctor? They, be, they may be sick. There may be things that are going on with their body that has changed. They may be dying. We have so many young people today just dropping dead. Just unprecedented. And I, I say to myself when I read these stories, there's, there had to have been some symptoms that they ignored. They just thought it was something and, uh, and then it, it continued to build and all of a sudden they collapse. Yeah. What has changed in our environment? Dr. Donahue that people need to pay much closer attention
1: to. Well the first issue that you raise Armstrong is that unfortunately the devil doesn't always spend money on advertising. So we have 375,000 people a year in America who have out of hospital sudden death. They weren't uninformed. They didn't have symptoms. They presented as the initial expression of vascular disease with sudden cardiac death. Just over the tenure of my career Essentially, every aspect of vascular mortality has been addressed except that so the same number keeps staring off the page year after year so it is the case that oftentimes illness presents in a fashion that uh, that is an advanced or even end of life moment without a long prologue all of your viewers tonight can think of members of their family or friends who have had the presentation of malignancy in an advanced stage so it is the case that that oftentimes serious illness or even life-threatening illness doesn't make itself evident. So we're used to thinking in our own experience about, say, getting the flu and you have a little sore throat today and a headache tomorrow, and then the third day you feel poorly, so we're used to that kind of prologue. But in more insidious disease, and in more life-threatening disease, that is not always the case. It turns out, for example, that for the average American, having, it takes six hours of continuous chest pain before that individual goes to the hospital. Think about that. It takes the average physician, the most well-educated <coughs> cohort on earth, about three hours. So we're all doing something else mm-hmm. and it's kind of an after the fact moment that we look at this mm-hmm. and see it in retrospect. But life unfolds from now to the future, not backwards. And so very often we miss illness, and as you say, and very often illness, even severe illness, presents with very mild symptoms. For example, in the Framingham study, it turned out that 25% of all people who had heart attacks had either no symptoms or symptoms that neither they nor their attending physician recognized. So this isn't some kind of failure of the healthcare system. This is the nature of serious disease. It isn't always so easy. There isn't always breast beating and hand waving. Sometimes these things creep in insidiously and only present when the snake is about to bite.
2: you know I love I love the clinical you know <clears throat> perspective that you have there, so I'm going to bring you to something that we call now the social determinants of health, or well, we're finding so many um, when we look at disparities and we, we look at just particular racial and ethnic populations, when we see the disproportionate level of disparities. <clears throat> and outcomes in these particular populations. I wanna go back just real quickly, just one of the data points to share with you, particularly in black women in the United States have over se- almost 70% of maternal mortality rate to their counterparts, their Caucasian counterparts, of three times more. That's three times the rate of white women. And this is according to the CDC. So what, what are some of the drivers of that? Well, why don't we go to the doctor? We may not have, first of all, access, and access takes multiple layers. Do you not have health insurance? do you not have transportation? You might have transportation, but if you've got three or four children, you may have to go across town to three or four different places. You may not have literacy, you may not have a job. You may have a job with an essential, you may be an essential worker on a job and you don't have access to health insurance. Or you may have health insurance, but you don't have money for pharmacy, right? And we know even here in Baltimore, the pharmacy deserts are just expanding. What is a pharmacy desert? Clearly a place where medications for that community, there's no pharmacy, and even more so, there may be a pharmacy there, but the medications, the, the, that pharmacy may not stop the medications that are, are, are needed, such as hypertensive medications. And so so there's so many issues. Yes, there's access, but when you think about the social, you know, the construct that Oftentimes, lower popul- lower-income populations live in. They stress. The stress of uh, is a gunshot, you know, happening. Do I have food? I'm a, I may be a diabetic, a person with diabetes. Do I have access to food? Well, hold on. I've got access to the 7-Eleven there that has high-salt content food, right? So it's so much broader than just a physical. You know, it's so much that leads to that that drives to. Um, the challenges that we have and so I'm really excited that our healthcare system now CMS is really um, you know speaking of this in a really, we're looking at race and ethnicity and how it plays making sure that providers are seeing that we've got to look at these social social determinants of health because it is having such an impact on an individual's ability to take care of their conditions.
0: So Dr. Knight uh, you know I often say I haven't taken medicine in 36 years. You know, I'm out 4 a.m. in the morning in the cold, running six miles, it's not easy. I, I, I don't think we place enough emphasis on what the individual could also do in this process of better taking care of their health. And some people say, well, I don't want to run. But you know, you can get out of the bed and you can just jump rope. or You can just jump up in, w- in one spot. You can do all kinds of things by yourself in the room. Why is it that people don't understand the importance of exercise, of, of heating your body, warming it in the morning, mm-hmm. whether it's in the cold or inside the room, how that also is a very important preventative measure? <laughs>
3: That's a great point, Armstrong. You know, when I was growing up, we had physical education class. And as an elementary school student, as a young child, I learned the benefits of exercise and health. The reality is, our children today do not all have that opportunity. There have been uh, numerous uh, counties that have cut funding for physical education, for health education in our schools. And you'll say, why am I talking about schools? Because that knowing what healthy, healthy behaviors are, are critical piece of knowledge that we need our children and every human to know. So just like I need to teach my child how to manage their money, brush your teeth, tie your shoelace, knowing the healthy behaviors are so critical and you may think oh everyone knows you don't i have mm-hmm. patients that come to me that could not identify that, what sodium is or even know how to identify that this is a high salt meal i'll say to them your cholesterol is through the roof they say well i'm i'm you know i'm not eating uh, cakes and cookies and i say well there's a lot of cholesterol in the meat that was fried that you had last night but they do not even know that because the education is not happening in the school system anymore when it comes to the types of food we the physical activity, preventive health is where it is. And, and as you've outlined, Armstrong, I want my patients not to be on medication. I'm I so excited when I see my 60 year olds, my 65 year olds coming in with a clean bill of health because we're focused on prevention. But we can't assume everyone knows it. We've got to be teaching each other in the health education.
1: Thank you for listening to this week's episode.